Well, we are in John chapter 3, verse 22. So if you would go ahead and meet me in John chapter 3, verse 22. Um, While you're getting there, I would like to uh, take some time to go over where we've been so far in the Gospel of John. I'd like to take some time to process um, what we've been introduced to as far as our experience with Jesus and our encounters with him. Uh, John opens his gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, with Christ as the pre-existent word, the one who was with and was God, the light who has not been overcome by the darkness. Um, In chapter 1, verse 19 through 34, he is declared as the present Messiah by John as he is uh, preparing the way for him in chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, he is the Messiah, but he um, also becomes a rabbi as he begins to gather his disciples to him. Um, Nathaniel confesses that he is the king of Israel. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus is the Lord of the feast, the one who we find both our provision and our celebration in. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, we see Jesus as the true temple, the true, temp- the true religion, the true way to God as he chases the money changers out of his temple. Um, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, we understand that he is the greater teacher of Israel as compared to the Pharisees. The things that he explains to Nicodemus, the, contra- the concepts that he introduces, um, even for one of the most educated people in Judah and Israel at the time, it was still way over Nicodemus's head. And now we come to chapter 3, verse 22. We come to Jesus as a minister. We come to him as the man across the Jordan. And if you would meet me in verse 22 and stand as you're able for the public reading of God's word. It begins, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. So, in this passage, we come to Jesus after he has had this conversation with Nicodemus. He is heading out into the Judean countryside to speak and do ministry there, and his disciples come with him and are baptizing in this region. Um, John and his disciples were at Anon near Salem, a place roughly approximate to where Jesus was, and... 
when we meet John in the first chapter, he is at Bethany across the Jordan. He is about 30, 40 miles east of Jerusalem, and by this point, he has migrated the 40 to 50 miles up the Jordan River um, towards the Sea of Galilee, and he is now um, in this sort of river valley type area. It's pretty green. It's pretty fertile. It's a good place to do baptism because there's water and there's people. Those are kind of the two things you need, so he made sure he had both of them there. And when I think of the Bible, I tend to think of one setting, and it's all like big sand dunes in a desert or in a city, but people have like this long, flowing sort of attire to keep the sun off, and uh, this is more of a, sort of a river valley type area. So it's not Tatooine so much as it's kind of maybe Dagobah, if you're a Star Wars fan. Um, but there is a bit of drama going on with John and his disciples, his faction of followers, and one thing you need to understand before I begin to address what these disciples were saying, what these disciples were doing, is that John was a weird dude. He is introduced in the Synoptic Gospels as a guy who has a camel hair shirt on, and he has a belt, and he's out in the wilderness, and he's eating locust and honey. And um, these uh, people, these disciples, decided it would be a good idea to pack up everything and follow this dude wearing the camel hair. So they are fanatic followers of someone who is... Um, not very domesticated. He is not the kind of person you would see at Starbucks. He is absolutely out there doing his own thing and is pretty unapologetic about it. And these people are, are just following him around. He was at Bethany across the Jordan. He did some ministry down there. And then he migrates 50 miles um, sort of north up the river. And they have been tagging along this whole time. They were present at the baptism of Jesus. And now they are with him as Jesus begins his ministry. And it says that in verse 25, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, this might have come from the miracle that Jesus did in Cana at the wedding when he used these water purification jars, which were used for Jewish purification rituals, to become containers for wine. There's a beautiful uh, sermon about that in the archives if you want to go back and listen to it. And... The word for discussion here is pretty moderately translated, in my opinion. The same word in the Greek is also used for controversy. One Greek dictionary describes it as sort of an airing of beliefs without necessarily assuming that you're going to come to a resolution. So in simpler terms, this is a shouting match. It is between a bunch of fanatic religious disciples and some Jew who just happened to have wandered into the wrong circle. No, it's probably not right. It's probably some um, disciple of a different sect of Judaism, probably some other teacher's disciple that wanted to either pick a fight or have a discussion, and they thought that John's disciples were the people to have it with. So they are beginning to talk about purification across the bank from the Messiah. And after this discussion, apparently the disciples not having a full picture of who Jesus is, come to John and say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Plainly said, hey, guy, hey uh, John, there, there, there's this dude that you set up, and now he's across the river, and he's kind of stealing all of our business, and I want to know like, what the deal is, and if this is something we should be worried about, because uh, you know, like, otherwise like, the whole like, locust and honey diet might work for you, but we could be doing other things. They're kind of concerned about what their future is, and I think we can really begin to understand what their priorities are, because a lot of times you're not insecure about things that you don't care about. A lot of times the things that you ask questions about, the things that you have concerns for, those are things that are pretty close to your heart. And they're beginning to ask, like, hey, we've kind of bought into this, and we saw that you were baptizing him, 
So is he the new guy on the block? Is he the person that we should be following now? Um, what's, what, what's the deal? Because he's, he's this competitor, he's across the river, he's doing his own thing, and we're over here, and we kind of feel like we're kind of getting lost in the shuffle here. And now the really fantastic thing about this um, next nine verses that I get to preach or so is that all of this is a response to that question. All of this in John's discourse with his, with his disciples are, is a response to who is that guy across the river? What do we do with him? How do we think about him? How do we approach this? And this was the point in my research, my study, where I thought, yeah, like, why, why is John doing this? Why doesn't he just, you know, like, say, hey, like, let's give up. We're going to go follow Jesus because he's here. I prepared the way, and now I am going to go follow the Messiah. Um, and I um, came to realize, as I continued to spend some time in the text, come to God to it, um, is that John was given a role. John was given a task and a ministry while he was here on earth, and he would not stop until God called him home, until God said that it is enough and that you can stop. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, writes that the greater gifts of some do not render the labors of others that come short of them needless and useless. There is work enough for all hands. They are sullen that will sit down and do nothing when they see themselves outshone. Though we have but one talent, we must account for that. And when we see ourselves going off, we must yet go on to the last. The moon and the stars do not leave the sky because the sun rises. They might fade into the background, but they are never not present. In the same way, if there is a stage production, if there is a play, then the people who are in supporting roles cannot just give up once the main act comes on stage, once the star, the lead man, the lead lady of the performance comes on. Um, if you have ever been to a play or seen a movie, you would know that you would kind of be taken out of the moment, you'd kind of be taken out of the performance if once Romeo or Juliet or Darth Vader come on stage and the person in the background starts talking about where they're going for pizza afterwards and they haven't finished their performance, that they haven't finished the role they had to play before they exit the stage, that would kind of take you out of it, wouldn't it? It would kind of leave you thinking like, oh, well, this, 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 this doesn't make sense, this doesn't add up. It, it, you, you would think you either don't care about the performance or you would think that you don't think that your role is significant. You can't give up just because we're being outshone. You have to continue, and this is... John's testimony of that, that he will continue until God calls him home. He answers them, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So John is perfectly fine with taking a back seat to Christ. John is perfectly fine with continuing in his ministry, continuing to point the way to Jesus, but he understands that he is not the point of this story that God is telling. He is completely okay with the fact that there are going to be people, there are going to be people who cross to the other side of the river. There are going to be people who go from what he is teaching to what the Messiah is teaching. He's totally fine with that. He's not insecure. He knows that his identity, his worth, his calling, his purpose, it isn't tied up in the execution of his office, but it is tied up in the person of his Messiah. He says that the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John is saying that I am just happy to watch. I'm happy to watch Christ be united with his bride, and this is the beginning of that process. I was in a wedding for a good friend from school named Tyler and his fiancée, Hope, at the time, 
And at the rehearsal dinner, we were sort of going over everything, how the process would go, where we'd stand, what we would do, what the pacing was. And there were a couple people in the um, sort of wedding party that had some pretty good ideas. They thought about how the day should go, and they thought, oh, you know, like, they're getting married, but really, like, I'm the one who's going to be running this. And uh, the couple hired a wedding planner to sort of orchestrate the whole affair. And there was a point where she sat us all down and looked at us and said, guys, I'm glad you're here, glad you're supporting Tyler and Hope, but you guys are here to fill out a pair of slacks and to balance out the bridesmaids to the groomsmen, so if you could just shove it and let me do this, that'd be great. Um, I don't think Christians have a place in directing the wedding. We are listening through to God's plan. We are following through on that. And we are here to bear witness to it and testimony to it. But we are not the main actors in this. It would be absurd if the best man at the wedding was watching the bride come down the aisle and then sort of just met her, grabbed her by the hand, and ran off. That would not be the kind of wedding you would shoot for. It's not appropriate. It's not what should happen. On that note, people who are participating in this ministry, people who are bearing witness to what Christ is doing, do not idolize them. Do not idolize your pastors. Do not idolize popular teachers of the day or authors because they can't save you. Tim Keller cannot save you. John Piper cannot save you. Jeff Beisel cannot save you. John Calvin also cannot save you. I hate to admit it, um, but he can't. So we need to realize that our joy is made complete by Christ coming in to who he is. John finishes this section by saying, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I think in the church in the modern age, we have this really scary idea of what decrease look like, looks like. It looks like it's fading into nothing. It looks like it's becoming completely obscure and eclipsed and never spoken of again. But John did this perfectly. John was able to remain consistent in his testimony that he could say to his disciples, hey, guys, I told you that I am not the one, but I am preparing the way. He said that in chapter 1, and he's saying it again now, and he will say it again until he is killed for what he is doing for the kingdom of God. But I don't think we should be afraid of decrease in this sense. I don't think we should be afraid of becoming less of ourselves. Um, as I said, John was the one who had done this so well, and the testimony that Jesus bears about him in Matthew chapter 11, um, some people came to ask if he was the Messiah, if John should be worried because he was in prison at this point. And Jesus' reply to these people um, is that, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. No one greater than John the Baptist. But this man was focused on his decrease, not his increase. What I want to drive home today is the fact that as we become less and Christ becomes more in us, as we become more transparent, allowing the gospel to show through us, we become more like ourselves than we could ever become by ourselves. We are most fulfilled, we are most whole, we are most who we are meant to be in fulfilling our calling when we allow Jesus Christ to have a greater presence in us than in ourselves. I'll say that again. In Christ, we become more like ourselves than we could by ourselves. But why must Christ increase? 
Why must he be the one that we are giving glory to? Why must we call him Messiah? Why must we call him Messiah? Um, the next part of John's answer answers that question. He says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. John is saying that Jesus has a completely different perspective because he has a completely different backstory. Jesus is from a place that is wholly different than where we are from because he has come down from heaven. He has lived in eternity past with God the Father as part of the Trinity. He is the Son of God, and he has an experience of God that is unique to everything that has been written in the Bible up until this time. It is more firm than the law of Moses. It is more comprehensive than the prophets. It is more directed at the heart than the songs or the Psalms or the Proverbs. And it is something that we need to take notice of. We need to be aware of the fact that he who comes from heaven is above all. He has this authority to speak into our lives to say that, hey, I know what you have seen in your life might lead you to certain conclusions. I know that you might have a certain business acumen. I know that you might be um, a decent teacher in your own right, but I trump that. I have a greater experience than what you could ever hope to attain because of where I am from and where I'm hoping to bring you into. The message of the gospel is that God has come down to meet us, to save us, and to reunite us with himself. That's what Jesus is doing. He's coming from heaven down to us so that he can bring heaven down with him. It says in verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He spoke to one of the greatest teachers at the time in Israel. He spoke to Nicodemus, and it went over his head. He didn't get it in chapter 3. He needed to have things explained to him again and again, and it still didn't seem like at the end of that passage that Nicodemus really understood what Jesus was talking about. That testimony was not received. We continue to see that playing out in the Gospels. We continue to see that Jesus is rejected by his own people. We continue to see that he did not have a home in the people that God sent him to, that the Father sent him to. But what if you do receive this testimony? What if you do believe in what God has said, the statement that he has made in his son, Jesus Christ? He says that whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. He who receives his testimony sets his seal that God has fulfilled every promise in the Old Testament that is made to his people, and the person that fulfills that promise is Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of everything that we have come to hope for in the Old Testament, in the law, in the prophets, in prophecy, in songs, in psalms, and proverbs. He is the embodiment of wisdom. He is the guide for Israel. He is the embodiment of the law, the perfect standard that God has for his people. And when we say that we're setting our seal to this. We're not saying that we are God's notary. We're not saying that, yep, we witnessed it, it's official, heaven can continue to be a good thing because I, I set my seal to it. I approve it. Kyle Bafia, it happened right there. Um, what we're saying is that we're going along for the ride. What we're saying is that we're committed to the mission that God has set out for us and that we are willing to follow after Jesus in this. So why should we follow Jesus? If it has to be true, and this is why John must decrease and Jesus must increase, then why Jesus? Because he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives spirit without measure. What God has done is that he has sent Jesus into the world as someone who has the spirit without measure, as someone who is able to give the spirit. And there are two ways that you can go for this. There's a lot of Greek behind it, and I don't want to bore you with it. Um, but essentially the idea is that either 
God is sending the person who utters the words of God, and God gives the Spirit without measure, or that Jesus is the person that gives the Spirit without measure and is also the person who is sent. Either way, Jesus is the linchpin in God's plan for spirit distribution. We see in other places in the New Testament where it discusses spiritual gifts and role in the church, roles in the church, um, that people are given certain grace to do certain things. Uh, some people are preachers, some people are teachers, some people um, have the ability to go and sit with people and counsel them, some people go and plant churches, some people do evangelism, and they're given a measure of the Spirit. They're given an amount, an allotment that they can use and benefit the kingdom with, and that is fantastic and beautiful because it gives us a chance to work together. It gives us a chance to depend on each other and what God is doing in his community. Um, but this is not so of Jesus. He is given the Spirit without measure to do all things. He is the one who can accomplish what God has sent him to do independently, and it is not us. Verse 35 says that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. God has given Jesus the authority to do this. God has given Jesus the authority to come down and convict sin, but also to forgive it. He has come down to call us sinners, but also righteous. He has given us the ability to come before God unashamed because we are covered in what he has done for us. God has given Jesus that authority. It says in verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So this is the gospel. This is John saying that to those who believe in Jesus, God has given the ability to have eternal life, to dwell with him forever. But so often we don't choose Jesus. So often we choose other things in our life that seem good at the time. We choose to follow other people that are not the Messiah. We choose to stand on the wrong side of the riverbanks. John Calvin once said that his, factory is a heart, is a, uh, his heart is a factory for idols. He continually produces them, and he continues to seek after things that are not God, that will not satisfy, and I'm the same way. I will continue to find whatever it is that allows me to assert my independence, my control, and that is not what the gospel calls me to, and I have to repent of that. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And just this action of belief is what causes this entry into eternal life. And we are called to obey him and do this faithfully. This is what John did. And I have to sort of call to mind all of these great achievements made by men and women over the years where they're written into history books because of what they have done. And a documentary that I've been uh, introduced to recently is this one about um, a couple of rock climbers. There's this giant 3,000-foot-tall granite wall in Yosemite called El Capitan, and there are a bunch of different routes up it that you can free climb. And there is one particular sort of section of the wall on the east face. It's the first thing that the sun hits in the morning, so they call it the dawn wall. And it is the hardest piece of continuous big wall climbing in the world. Um, it is this Olympic gold medal level performance. And it took seven years for two guys to figure it out. Their names were Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen. And after seven years, they decide that this is the time. They kind of have an idea of how it's going to work. So they try and climb the entire thing in one push. It takes them 19 days of living on the side of this wall and this, in these cots and just not having a ton of leg room, not stretching out really, but then just hard climbing every day, super taxing on your muscles, your endurance. And about halfway through, Kevin Jorgensen gets stuck. He's been working on this for seven years, and he just can't make a certain move. He keeps losing his balance, or his fingers slip off. And he begins to wonder if he's actually going to make it to the top. And he says this thing that was so striking and so poignant to me about how, I hope that I really enjoyed this process. I hope that I enjoyed this seven-year struggle where I was falling, where I was cutting my fingers open, where I was dislocating ribs and other body parts, 
because if I don't make it to the top, that's all that I get. If we trust only in ourselves, the process is all we get. If we don't conquer the world, the process is all we get and we'll fade into obscurity forever. But in Christ, we persist forever with eternal life, with him, with the one who sent him. So I don't know what you do for a living. Um, some of us are school teachers, some of us are uh, full-time moms, some of us are engineers or teachers, and I don't know what you do, but I do know that whatever job that is, it could probably use a little less of you and a little more of Jesus. It could use a little less independence, a little more faithfulness, because we aren't built to do it by ourselves. We aren't built to be competitors with God. We aren't built to, sell, we aren't built to set ourselves up as idols, um, but we are built to confess that someone is the Messiah, and it is Jesus Christ. So when we come to this passage about the disciples, don't judge them too harshly. Don't think that they didn't have it all together. Don't think that they um, really just hated the Messiah and hated Jesus and were you know, the Antichrist and terrible people um, because a lot of times we do the same thing. But at the end of the day, we need to understand that we need to stand on one side of the river or the other. He either needs to be the Messiah or that man across the banks. We can't stand in the middle with our feet wet. So how do we, how do we attain to this? How do we begin to understand this in our lives. And the first thing I think we should do is look to Jesus on the cross. We should look to the person who purchased our redemption for us by his blood. And every week we do this and recognize this, and that is the sacramental communion. When Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, when it was the Last Supper, he looked around and took the bread that was on the table, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body that was broken for you. And he went over and he took the wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. This is a complete death for complete payment. Um, this also was juice. And he gave it to them to take and eat and participate in what he was doing. Um, if you are a Christian, this is for you. This table is for you to come and eat and drink of what Christ has provided. If you are not a Christian, um, take Christ instead. Sit back, think about what you've heard, think about what it means for you today. You would stand with us and read our corporate prayer.